ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. And I'm really glad to have uh, on the program today Glenn Packiam, who's the pastor of New Life Downtown in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And he's the author of a relatively new book called Blessed, Broken, Given uh, that's really interesting and I think uh, maybe especially interesting during this time of uh, coronavirus and pandemic and quarantine and, and all of the questions that are going on right now about uh, daily life. Uh, and, and one of the reasons that I think that might be interesting is we're thinking a lot more about food uh, these days in terms of how we get it into our homes. Uh, a lot of people are learning to bake bread uh, at home. And this book is about bread. Uh, it's it's built around the theme of bread. Glenn, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Morris. Great to be with you today. Now, what uh, caused you to think about uh, building the book around uh, this uh, biblical imagery of bread? <laughs> well, uh, bread is such a familiar symbol throughout the scripture, but it, I think it's drawn on because it's so common. Uh, bread is, is sort of the most basic food item. In fact, there, um, last year when I was visiting New York City, a friend told me about a bakery in lower Manhattan that has uh, on its wall bread from all around the world. And when you think about it, it's really true. Cultures and societies all across the world have some version of bread. I grew up in Malaysia and uh, we had this version of kind of flat, flaky bread, sort of like Indian naan bread that was called roti. And, and uh, you know, my wife is from the Midwest. She's from Iowa. And uh, I remember her parents talking about their parents uh, when, when sliced bread was available in the grocery store. So bread is sort of this uh, very common food item. And yet in the scriptures, it is used to speak of the most uncommon thing. In the Old Testament, it's used to speak of God's provision. It's used to speak of the very law of the Lord. And then, of course, Jesus uses it to speak about his own body and the meaning of his death on the cross. I want to go back to that uh, division between blessing bread and breaking bread and giving bread uh, a little bit later on. But before that, I was really interested in a section that you have in the book where you're talking about a time of plague, uh, Christian leader Cyprian in Carthage, and uh, about the, the difficulty that was happening in the church because— You'd had a lot of Christians who had uh, sort of abandoned their confession of faith when they came under persecution, and there was a lot of conversation about whether or not to receive them back. Uh, and I think everybody can relate to that to some degree or 
other, uh, maybe not within the church, but everybody's had a disappointment with somebody, and then you're trying to figure out, can I trust you again? But then a plague comes, and you have this really interesting dynamic between Christians ministering to each other and ministering to uh, pagans in the outside world. I'm sure that now, when you think about that, it it hits you entirely differently than it did even when you were writing it not that long ago. It's so true. It's so true. Thinking about you know how early Christians, how Christians throughout the centuries really have responded in times of crisis and difficulty, uh, brings immense encouragement to us today. And Cyprian called his congregation together and asked them to demonstrate the kind of courage and the kind of patience that actually differentiates between Christians and pagans. And uh, even as we're trying to be cautious with the, the situation all around us, we also we still want to demonstrate a kind of courage and hope, and we want to demonstrate immense patience with one another. I, I think sometimes as a pastor, uh, it is concerning how we treat people who are responding differently. And of course, this is not the same as uh, the crisis they were dealing with, with people who had sort of lapsed in faith and they were trying to figure out how to reintegrate them back into the congregation. But we have versions of that today where people are responding with di- different levels of, of, of fear and worry. And, and it, it is an opportunity for us to demonstrate Um, patience with one another and mercy to the world around us. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things that's taking place right now is that, uh, especially as it relates to food, is that you have Christians who are caring for their neighbors in really extraordinary ways, and I think maybe even finding out about areas of need that they never knew were present before. I had a a pastor uh, call me in a major urban area in the country who said um, they're dealing with uh, elderly people uh, in their congregation who can't get food because they can't get to the grocery store and they're on a form of government assistance that wouldn't allow them to have uh, Instacart or some other delivery service come in. And so they're having to find ways to serve. I think there's some equivalent of that in almost every community and Christians finding ways to be engaged. That's exactly right. And we're talking to churches in our own city who have done all kinds of things, including our own church, New Life. You know, New Life Downtown is one of our seven congregations, but we've kind of been able to pool our resources together as one church family. And uh, people have been dropping off canned goods and we've been distributing them to agencies in our city. And we've been delivering meals to senior care facilities in town and taking groceries to people's homes. So you're exactly right. In many ways, we're reenacting the kind of care and mercy uh, to, to the sick and to the vulnerable that Christians have always done throughout the centuries. Yeah, and it's interesting to me, and you, you talk about uh, in the book, uh, Jesus distributing the loaves, uh, the the miracle of multiplying the loaves. And one of, the that's really, one of the things that's really interesting about that is Jesus takes concern for physical hunger. Uh, he doesn't dismiss that. But then he goes beyond it to say the physical hunger is a signpost for something else, and I am the bread of life. Yeah, I mean, every miracle that Jesus does is a sign that points to the inbreaking of the kingdom. And the kingdom looks like the hungry being fed, but the kingdom at its core is about the restoration of all things. It's about the kingship of Jesus putting back together the broken world. So there there ought not to be this division uh, you know, in our minds between a proclamation of the gospel in word and a demonstration of the gospel in deed. And so the way that the church serves our communities right now is to be, you know, one side of the same coin uh, of our proclamation of what, what it looks like for Jesus to be king. So that that's absolutely right. And bread 
bread in the hands of Jesus becomes both a demonstration of of his care and compassion for their physical need, but also a way of pointing to something much larger, that he himself is the greatest provision that God has given us. Well, and of course, if you think about uh, the title of your book, Blessed, Broken, Given, uh, that for most people who are really familiar with the Bible, one of the first images that's going to come to them is Jesus in the upper room taking the bread, breaking it, and uh, giving it to uh, his disciples. And, uh, you know, that's really a weird situation that we find ourselves in right now uh, when it comes to the Lord's table. I find myself hearing people, I sort of, um, I don't know what you think about it, I sort of bang my head against a wall when I see people saying, uh, you know, let's do the Lord's Supper online and just, uh, you know, take some goldfish and some Kool-Aid and, and let's do it. Uh, and that's happening. And I get why people are doing of course. that. Uh, but this really isn't something, unlike a lot of things, this really isn't something we can we can replicate digitally, is it? Uh, we our hearts are aching. I mean, I think I, I admire and applaud the different ways that we're trying to approximate it. But we all know, it, whatever our attempts are, we all know it falls woefully short of the the, the sacred moment of being together. And I mean, it's going to be a long time probably before we're able to do that. So there is definitely an ache, uh, even just thinking about the Lord's table. You know, one of the things I, I do think, though, that might, uh, that the Lord might use for good in this is that there is at least some streams of um, American evangelicalism that have downplayed uh, the Lord's table, sort of overreacting, I think, sometimes to some other uh, theologies in a way that the Lord's Supper was really rare in some places. And I, I wonder if the fact that people are really experiencing now the, the lack of of uh, being able to be uh, together around the Lord's table will cause a, a resurgence of, of seeing the necessity and the need of doing what Jesus commanded us to do. Well, it's that's a great question. And I think, you know, the Lord's table becomes, you know, has been for Christians a central practice, but it really kind of becomes this paradigm of our life together as the people of God that you can't do this. You can't simulate this virtually uh, there is a kind of uh, sense in which the family is being the family of God is being formed around the table of Jesus, and and it reminds me of so many places in the Gospels where we we want the Jesus and me kind of stuff, which our current uh, iteration of church digitally you know only reinforces. But at a table, there's people there that we might not have chosen. Just as at Jesus's table, you know, there was uh, there was Judas who, who maybe the other eleven didn't want to be there or was suspicious of or whatever the the, the whispers might have been. And so there is something powerful about remembering that the Lord's table is the place where Jesus welcomes us and forms us together as a family, even with people that we might not have chosen. You know, one of the things I think about all the time is there are so many social scientific studies that have looked at indicators of whether or not a family is going to hold together uh, in terms of parenting and children. And one of the major indicators, uh, uh, far and above uh, all sorts of other things that we value, is whether or not the family eats together uh, and has some sort of uh, some sort of dinner together rather than just, um, you know, doing what's so easy, which is everybody scrounge for whatever they're going to get and eat it in their separate rooms in front of uh, in front of Netflix or something. I think that probably indicates uh, something about the way that God created us, that, that it's not just that we 
we need to be together, but we need to be together eating. Yes. Yes. Well, eating, I mean, sociologically, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And one of the reasons for it is because eating is one of those few moments where we uh, have to kind of face one another. And that's why it is so destructive uh, to do meals around a screen because we've just totally killed the, the, one of the most powerful um, aspects of a meal together. And that is you, you begin to sit around a table, you begin to look each other in the eye and the, and you have to slow down. I mean, I, I have found myself in our home during this quarantine that one of the great gifts in a, in a difficult season has been the ability to, to be in the kitchen together uh, with my wife and making meals together every evening and the kids jumping in and we're all of us doing the dishes together. There's something that about the meal time that makes you slow down, makes you look at one another, talk with one another, uh, we've we've begun to try to practice some conversation starters around the table. But all of this, I mean, even going back to the, the Cyprian story, you know, the idea of the early Christians learning to have meals together is how they learn to cultivate patience with one another. And it's 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 uh, you know, it's one of the points Kreider makes in his book, Patient Ferment of the of the Early Churches, is patience gets cultivated through a practice like communion and coming out of the table. Yeah. And what a great book that is as well. Yeah. When, when you think about one of the things that you mentioned in the book that I, I was struck by is you talk about hospitality. And uh, I think one of the things that tends to happen is when, when the church says hospitality, I think most people maybe because of the way that we think of the hospitality industry or, or what have you, we think about that in terms of manners, politeness, uh, sort of really surface level sort of ways of dealing with it. What do you mean when you say hospitality? Uh, I am thinking of the radical welcome of Jesus. Uh, it, It is a welcome and it is a healing. And I want to, let me just talk a little bit about both of those things. It's a welcome because even in the New Testament, that idea of hospitality is the idea of welcoming the stranger or someone who's not quite like you. And the early church was a radical new kind of community. So in in the uh, first century in the world, even before that, people formed bonds of solidarity based on family lineage. They formed bonds of solidarity based on geography. They formed bonds of solidarity based on shared ritual practices. And along comes this new community that is all of a sudden not participating in the uh, accepted Roman rituals of solidarity. Uh, These are people that were not just of one ethnic group. They were not like the Jews, but they were kind of like the Jews, but they included Gentiles somehow. And they had people worshiping and eating together uh, of different social strata. And so it created all kinds of upheaval. And and it's funny to read, you know, Robert Louis Wilkin, the the Christian historian, has uh, an interesting um, book on the um, uh, on how the Christians as the Romans saw them and and just sort of reading their letters they're kind of scratching their heads saying who are these people what are they doing and 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 what kind of community is this so there is a radical welcome uh, where all kinds of divisions are torn down without erasing differences so differences are not erased but divisions are eliminated but then there's also a sense in which it's not just welcome but wholeness or healing that is being offered. And here I think about Jesus in the Gospels healing the leper or healing uh, the person that was sick and then asking them to show themselves at the temple. Why? So that they could be reintegrated into the community. Uh, There is a sense in which in our world today, Dr. Moore, we want to choose one or the other. We either want to 
you know, emphasize, okay, you've got to become whole before uh, you, you can belong. And, and that's true. But then we're in danger of, of missing out the, the wide reach of the good news. But on the other hand, we have people who say, well, let's just accept everyone. Let's welcome everyone. But we don't call people to become whole. But it isn't loving. It isn't actual Christian hospitality to allow people to persist in dysfunction or disordered affections and all of that. So true Christian hospitality welcomes and heals uh, people into a new community. Uh, and that means what's going to happen is just as when uh, Jesus uh, eats with uh, Zacchaeus, <laughs> you're going to have both people yeah. who are going to say, well, you shouldn't be hanging around with people like that. And people right. saying, how dare you call these people to repentance? <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of, um, for people who are within the church right now, a lot of, um, I'm sensing a lot of anxiety. That's that's more than just the anxiety that everyone is facing when we're looking at death tolls on television and so forth. But the, the anxiety of saying, what's going to happen to the church when we're you know, not meeting in most places for a long period of time and maybe people... Uh, are going to be uh, losing their jobs because uh, of the unemployment rate, and and who knows if we're up against another Great Depression, and so forth. How is how is your church uh, grappling with those sorts of questions right now? Uh, I mean, we are preparing ourselves to be able to to help people as as much as possible, and definitely, you know, requests are coming in, needs are are escalating. Um, we have been grateful for the generosity of our people. We, we haven't seen a dip of giving, but we're, obviously nobody knows what's around the corner. Uh, but we're, we're trying to be wise about our expenses. But, but I would say even beyond that, we're trying to offer people the, the, the message of hope um, that, we ha- that we're given throughout the scriptures, that Jesus will never leave us, that in this world we will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And, and and at New Life, there's a little bit of muscle memory for this because, you know, 13, 14 years ago, whatever, we you know, we had a major uh, crisis and scandal. And a year after that, in 2007, we had a, a shooting that happened. So for people who've been around, uh, who've been in the church for, for that long, they remember there's a muscle memory of what we do in crisis is we dig in in prayer and in worship and in the scriptures. And we dig deep in community and, and care for one another. So we're, we're, we're trying to find every tool that we can, you know, digitally and all of that to, to leverage the connection, um, but also being wise with our resources. It's sort of a Joseph moment, you know, where we can prepare for potential seasons of lack so that we can care for those in our midst. Well, the book is called Blessed, Broken, Given, and the author that we've been talking to today, somebody I respect greatly, Glenn Packiam, and I really encourage you to check that out. And also, uh, I mean, many people know Glenn uh, as an author and uh, as a preacher. He also is a musician, and I really, uh, I listen to his music uh, often as well, and so check that out too, especially uh, especially the the album that you did, sort of built around uh, oh, Book yeah. of Common Prayer. I really, I really yeah. like that. The mystery of faith. Yeah, yeah, the mystery of faith. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Well, thanks so much for being with us today on Signpost, Glenn. Thank you, Doctor Moore. Pleasure. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts.
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.